All right, I'm back. <laughs> um, by the way, Roy sends his regards. He is helping North Point Messy Church uh, today. And so you'll see him next week. And Micah's around somewhere, sleeping or running around. So you'll see him in a little bit. Let me make sure this works. There it is. Okay. Anybody know what this is? Well, obviously, it's the Cyrus Cylinder. But who is Cyrus? Does anybody know who Cyrus is? He was the king of Medo-Persia. And so, um, well, he had many names, but one of them was Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. And he started ruling this new empire in 539 B.C., And he expanded what had previously been the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, remember him? Um, And he had had conquered most of Southwest Asia, much of Central Asia, and became uh, the emperor of this new Achaemenid Empire, which is modern-day Iran. And he's called Cyrus the Great because he was one of the first kind of recorded leaders, world leaders, who provided religious freedom amongst his subjects, because his empire included many cultures, many languages, many different backgrounds, and he was one of the first leaders who actually said, you can practice your own religion, Um, you can live the way that you want to live, you can keep your culture, because previously to that, you had to adapt to whatever the emperor said you had to adapt to. And the cool thing is that we have archaeological evidence today um, showing this, and this Cyrus Cylinder um, was discovered um, in 1879 by some British um, archaeologists. And so it's now at the British Museum. I think it's touring in the U.S. currently. But this is what the Cyrus Cylinder, it's kind of broken. It's a clay tablet, so they don't have the entirety of it. But there's enough there to kind of uh, figure out. It's an um, Akkadian Babylonian cuneiform. And this is a rough translation of it. Here it is. It says, I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world. I sought the safety of the city of Babylon and all its sanctuaries. As for the population of Babylon, who as if without the divine intervention had endured a yoke not to create for them, I soothed their weariness, I freed them from their bonds. From Shuna, I sent back to their places to the city of Asher and Susa, Akkad, the land of Ashna, the city of Zambon, the city of Maternu, there, as far as the border of the land of Guti, the sanctuaries across the river Tigris, whose shrines had early become dilapidated, the gods who lived therein and made permanent sanctuaries for them. I collected together all of their people and returned them to their settlements, and the gods of the land of Sumer and Akkad, which Nabonidus, the fear of the Lord of the gods, had brought into Shuana at the command of Marduk, the great lord. I returned them unharmed to their cells in the sanctuaries that make them happy. So this is actually um, the, the Cyrus Cylinder um, became a great art- artifact of this king that allowed the people who had been captives in that land of, of uh, the Babylonian Empire previously to actually return to their lands, to return to their gods, to return to rebuilding their sanctuaries. Now, another interesting thing um, about Cyrus the Great is that because he was one of the first leaders to have this kind of tolerant view of multiculturalism, many people were inspired by him. Apparently, um, there's a historian, Greek historian, who wrote about him. And apparently, every British person had to read 
that book to get into through college or university. Uh, so even though they hated it, apparently it was really boring, everybody had read it. Um, and the early pioneers who founded the American kind of constitution, example, Thomas Jefferson, was very influenced by Cyrus the Great. So he had actually ordered an Italian, you know, translation of Cyrus's works in, you know, right before uh, the American Constitution was written in 1787. So the Cyrus cylinder was actually not discovered then, but just the writings about him had been around. Another source of ancient history that talked about Cyrus is of a sp- special interest to me and hopefully to you. Um, Josephus, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a Jewish historian uh, who lived in the first century, uh, so almost the same time as Jesus, or pretty much the same time as Jesus, a little bit after as well. But this is what he wrote about Cyrus. He wrote, In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, which was the 70th from the day that our people were moved out of their own land to Babylon, God commiserated the captivity and calamity of these poor people, according as he had foretold to them by Jeremiah the prophet before the destruction of the city, that after they had served Nebuchadnezzar and his posterity, and after they had undergone that servitude of 70 years, he would restore them again to the land of their fathers, and they should build their temple and enjoy their ancient prosperity. And these things God did afford them, for he stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this throughout all Asia. Thus says Cyrus the king, since God Almighty has appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed, he foretold my name by the prophets that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. One more paragraph. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, the temple of God, for that he would be their assistant and that he would write to the rulers and governors that were in the neighborhood of their country of Judea that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple and besides that, beasts for their sacrifices. In other words, Josephus is saying, look, Yes, Cyrus the Great, we all know from history that he allowed people to go back to their lands. But Josephus is implying, guess what? Guess where he got that idea? He got it from the book of Isaiah. And the question is, well, where did he get the book of Isaiah? And how did he manage to understand it? It was written in Hebrew, and he was a Persian king. So how do you think that this Persian king, Cyrus the Great, ended up reading the book of Isaiah, which led him to then uh, liberate and allow all people to go back to their previous lands from which they had been taken captive. Any ideas? Daniel. I agree with you. I think it was Daniel. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel was a Jewish man who had been taken captive when he was in his teenage years as a young man out of Jerusalem, and he had been taken to Babylon. And he served under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar died. He had sons, grandsons. And the Medo-Persians took over. 
And Daniel was still not only alive, but actually respected enough to be kept in, as a high official in the land. So who better than Daniel to come approach King Cyrus in 539 BC and say, you know what, King? This is the 70th year since our land, our uh, people, the Jews, have been taken. And there is a prophecy that was written 120 years before you were even born that mentions you by name and says that you are going to free us and let us return. And I imagine Cyrus must have been so intrigued. What do you mean my name was written in a prophecy a hundred some years before I was born? And I imagine Daniel, you know, being the man that he was, had the scrolls of Isaiah and Jeremiah tucked away in his sleeve, ready to go. And he said, well, let me show you. You know, brings it out, unrolls the papyrus. And I imagine that this is what he read. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. The book of Isaiah was written over a 100 years before the time of Daniel and Cyrus. Okay, keep that in mind. So 100 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 to 28. This is what Isaiah wrote down. Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backwards and make their knowledge foolishness. Let's skip down, well, actually 26. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. I will raise her up, uh, her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up the rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And then if you keep going, chapter 45, just keep reading. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and lose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Um, and he keeps going on about how he is the Lord, etc. And let me skip to 13. I have raised him up, still talking about Cyrus, in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Can you imagine how Cyrus felt as he is being read to him this prophecy that was written a hundred some years before he was born, telling him exactly uh, by name what he was going to do. There's actually not only these passages, there's a lot more. There are 23 references to Cyrus in the Old Testament books, in prophecy, 23 times. And I don't know if Daniel went through each one. Maybe he did. Or maybe just Isaiah was enough. 
But I imagine Cyrus, as he's listening to these references of his name being read over and over and over again, that he is impressed that there is a God who cared about him, who called him by name, and who had given him a specific mission. And that mission was to let the people go back to Israel, rebuild the temple. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And it's really, really interesting that in uh, you know 1879, when they finally discovered the Cyrus Cylinder, it corroborated this Bible uh, fact. Because for a long time, all we knew about Cyrus was what was in the Bible and what Xenophon, this Greek writer, had written. But when the archaeologists found the Cyrus Cylinder, it was just amazing that once again, yep, he did let the people go back. He was this man who liberated the people. And I, I do think that it is very highly likely that it was inspired by Daniel and by this access to the Old Testament prophecy uh, that was read to him or given to him. And, you know, if we think about Cyrus, he had a choice, didn't he? When he heard about the prophecy, when he was given that option, right, he didn't have to accept that mission. He could have read that and said, ah, well... I don't really feel like letting the people go back. I don't really feel like releasing all the gold and temp- uh, silver that was taken from the Temple of Jerusalem. I don't really feel like, you know, allowing this tolerance and freedom. Um, and you know what? I don't care what was written about me. I don't know if, I don't care if that was my name and I don't care if, you know, that's what the God of Israel wants of me. He could have rejected this great prophecy and this great mission and this great call to be Cyrus the Great, right? But the wonderful thing is that he recognized, he recognized God's hand. The reason why I read so much of Isaiah 44 and 45 is because, I don't know if you caught those references where God says, I will open the double doors, the, the, the gates of bronze and the bars of iron. I will dry up the rivers. Do you remember that? Well, the very interesting thing is that when the Medes and Persians took over Babylon, how did they do it? They dried up the river Euphrates that went under the city of Babylon because the walls were too thick. The walls are so thick that two chariots could run side by side on top of the walls. There was no way to get through. So what did they do? They actually just dried up the river. They rerouted it, and then they marched underneath And they hardly had to fight. They just went underneath, and they got in, and they opened the doors. Guess what? Double doors of bronze. (laughs) And they walked in. And Babylon was not ready. They were partying. They thought they were safe. So they were taken completely by surprise. Done. And Cyrus recognized, as he reflected on his past, and he, as he listened to those words, he recognized that this wasn't just a coincidence. He realized... God was with me. There, God's hand has been in my life. God has led me to where I am. And I'm not saying that he necessarily you know, gave up all the other foreign gods and now became a worshiper of Jehovah only, but there is a recognition that this God is powerful. And this is what it says in Ezra. If you turn to the book of Ezra, and that's also on the screen. Here we go. Ezra chapter 7. Um verses 1 to 11. This is uh, what the historical account of Ezra says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, and by the way, when he says the Lord here in the original Hebrew, he uses the Jehovah, the personal name of God, not Elohim or other names, but this this personal name that is only used when you're kind of uh, friends with God, when you're when you're um, accepting God for someone that you want to have a personal relationship with. So he says, The Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah, build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Uh, furthermore, if you jump down, it says, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. And this is the inventory of what he gives back. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 silver pans, 30... Oh, sorry, I was like 10 gold bowls. 30 gold bowls, uh, 410 matching silver bowls, 1,000 other articles. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver that he basically just says, take it back. And he also tells the neighbors, you know what? When the Israelites leave, he says, give them your gold and your silver. Give them precious things so that they can go back and rebuild their temple. Isn't that pretty amazing that this foreign emperor actually follows the call of an Israelite God that he didn't know before? All because he's so impressed that God would call him by name. There was another man whose mission was prophesied years before he was born. Hundreds to thousands of years before he was born. And just as Cyrus is uh, in the 23 times, he's referenced, he's called the shepherd and the anointed. This other man was also called the anointed one and the shepherd. Prophecies about him are found in almost every book of the Old Testament, the last of which was written 400 years before he was born. And here are some of them. He was to be born in Bethlehem. He would be from the tribe of Judah. He would be born of a virgin. He will be presented to Jerusalem riding a donkey. He will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. His hands and feet were to be pierced, but none of his bones would be broken. His garments would be taken, gambled on, and he will be mocked. He will be anointed in 27 AD, and he will be killed in 31 AD. He would suffer persecution and be killed, though innocent, and he would rise from the dead. And these are just a handful of the many, many prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus, too, is, you know, we, we often picture Jesus as the one on the cross who had already accepted his mission. But if you go back in time to when he was a child, right, can you imagine Jesus growing up as a child, um, learning, I'm sure, at some point in his life, a story that his mother was a virgin, which would have been very difficult for him to understand, right? Learning at some point that his father is is God himself. Learning at some point that he's actually the Messiah of the world. And as he studied the scripture on his mother's knee and read verses like the Messiah was going to be led as a lamb to the slaughter, right? Reading verses about how, uh, Psalm 22, how his hands and his feet would be pierced, you know? As a young child, Jesus had to read that and say to himself, this is my mission. 
And by the time he was 12 years old, he understood it very well because we have that first story. We don't really know much about his childhood, but when he's 12 years old, he goes to the temple with his mom and dad. And then after a few days, his mom and dad forget about him, as often happens when parents are busy. And they find him again in the temple three days later after they had lost him. And he's there teaching and and explaining the sanctuary to the priests. And everyone is kind of astonished at this young man. Can you imagine, right? 12 years old, teaching with authority. And when, when his parents come and say, hey, we were worried about you. Where were, you know, what are you doing here? He basically says, I'm going about my father's business in my father's house. That's, that's the gist of what he says. Meaning he understood that he was the son of God. He understood his mission. He understood when he came to that first Passover service and that little lamb, that it was innocent little cute fluffy lamb was killed and his blood taken into the sanctuary. Jesus as a 12 year old watching that understood that is my mission. But just because he understood it doesn't mean it was easy to accept. Fast forward, you know, 20 years and when he's 31 years old or 30 years old and he's um, being led to the cross, right? And as the night is coming for his arrest, and he's at the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's hours away from betrayal, right? Hours away from arrest. Do you remember what he says? He's praying to God the Father, and he says, if possible, right, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I really don't want to do this, right? I really don't want to do this. But then Jesus says, but if it is your will then I'll do it. And you know Jesus doesn't say that just once. If you read the the passage, I'll just narrate it for you, Matthew chapter 26, 36 to 44. Not once, not twice, but three times he says, My Father, if it's possible that this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. It was difficult to accept. But Jesus, even though he struggled with it, as anyone would, and it wasn't just because of the physical suffering. Jesus had so much more that he had to put on himself. He was a a man who was innocent and who had never felt guilt his entire life, who was about to go to the cross and carry the guilt to the entire world. I don't know about you, but when I feel guilty about something, it feels pretty bad. When I feel ashamed about something, it feels awful, right? And for us, we have the wonderful good... um, grace to be able to be forgiven and we can move on but for jesus on the cross he had to feel the weight of and we'll never know what that's like to feel the weight of sin and guilt and shame of every single person in this world has you know ever lived in that moment and for somebody who hated sin to take that on he didn't want that it was a terrible thing and he knew it would be very difficult but just like cyrus Jesus said, I'll take it. If that is my mission, I will accept it. And he did. And he died on the cross for you and for me. And just like Cyrus, in the 70th year that of prophecy, released the people to go back to Jerusalem. In the 70th prophetic year, um, and we can do that study at 101 if you'd like, um, in the 70th prophetic year, as foretold ironically in the book of Daniel during Cyrus' time, Jesus issued a decree 
that allowed all those in slavery to sin to be freed and to return to their spiritual Israel, to return to be able to worship God. And this is the decree. Um, let's turn to, by the way, I want to read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. This is uh, part one of the decree. He went to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And, and I just, you know, picture, just like Daniel unrolled the scrolls of Isaiah to Cyrus. Here's Jesus unrolling, like physically, the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine how dramatic that would have been, right? He's basically saying, yep, I am the Messiah. This is my mission, and I'm here to do it. Sadly, after he says that, they tried to kill him immediately. Um, but there's a part two to the decree. If you go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. This is um, the second part of the decree. Jesus then said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after his resurrection. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This was the decree. His decree was to free the captives, and then his decree was then passed on to his disciples, and he was saying, look, proclaim, share the good news that everyone can now be free, that everyone can now become a new creation, that everyone can now return to their spiritual Israel, that everyone can go back to their true home. And this wonderful message, right? Can you imagine when Cyrus made this decree and the messengers went throughout the kingdoms of Asia and the empire? And it would take a long time. They didn't have, you know, Facebook to announce this news. So, as you know, I don't know how many days and weeks and months it took, but by the time it got to the person who was in captivity, they have this wonderful news now. And the moment they get the news, they can now start packing and go home. Right? Can you imagine if you had been taken captive somewhere, and you long to go home, but no one comes to tell you that you are now free. So Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go share the good news that they are free. I've already died for them. I've already paid the price for their freedom. They are now free to go. But the question is, are his disciples, that is us, accepting our mission to be those messengers, to carry that good news to those around us. I propose to you that just as Cyrus was called by name, just as Jesus was prophesied in time, that we too are not here by chance. You know, Jesus' name wasn't written down. They called him the Anointed One and the Messiah, but it didn't say Jesus Christ, born of Mary and Joseph, right? But even though it didn't say that, there was enough in the scriptures to let Jesus know that, is t that was talking about him, right? 
There were enough signs in his life, in the circumstances, in history, in everything that let him know, yep, this is my purpose. And in the same way, there is enough in the Bible, enough in our own personal lives, where God is pointing to us and saying, yep, this is your purpose. For example, when you study the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Revelation, all these books that are in the Bible, um, and I don't have the time to go through it now, but again, I'm happy to go with you through it with you individually. There is a time prophecy, just like there was one for Cyrus, 70 years. There was just like there was one for Jesus, um, 70 prophetic years, which is 490 years. There was one for his people um, at the end of time, and it spans 2,300 years. And I'll just cut down to the math and tell you that 1844 is the last uh, prophetic year that is described in the Bible. In other words, anybody living after 1844 um, is given a special message to share. And if you go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, this is the message. It says, And I saw another angel flying to the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he shall sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. This is the message that God wants his people to share today. This message about fearing God, and Roy has preached on this before, how fearing God isn't this like, ooh, Mufasa fear, right? It's not that kind of fear. This fearing God is this awe and respect. Don't laugh at me, Daryl. <laughs> this awe and respect and reverence. Um, fearing God in, in the way that you look at the universe and you just see the stars and you think, wow, right? It's this fearing God that um, actually changes us that makes us realize that God is so much bigger than we are. And there's a quote that I really like um, about this idea of fear by William Eisenhower. This is what he says. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions, so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down, only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. I really like that because it just points out that God is scary, but not in the sense that he's going to, you know, kill us and, 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 you know, do terrible things to us, but scary in the sense that he is a powerful, powerful God. And he's a God of holiness and we are unholy. And when we, when we realize that dichotomy, we can come to him and say, God, I am nothing and I'm a sinner and I need you. And it's at that point that he provides mercy and forgiveness and love. And there we can truly then be in awe and we give glory to him and we worship him. And that's the message that God wants us to share. Fear him. Realize he's this amazing God. right? Give glory to him and worship him. We live in a day and age where we worship everything but God. right? 
We worship our TV, right? We worship our sports teams. We worship our food. I do. We worship, you know, so many things that um, we're addicted to, that we idolize, that we adore, that we pour our time and effort and money into. And God is saying, look, I want you to share the good news, the everlasting good news, he says, the angel says, proclaim the good news of freedom from those other things and the freedom to be able to go back to our true original home and our true creator, the God of heaven. There's one more uh, verse that kind of gives us this special mission. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, there are many people around us, even in my own personal um, life, there are many people I'm close to who are uh, going through depression, who are going through stress and anxiety, who are going through feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, feeling like they're not making any difference in this world, uh, wondering why they even exist, feeling like they're just in a rat race in a hamster wheel, right? Day in and day out. And they don't see purpose, they don't see light, they don't see joy in their daily existence. And I guess the question for, for myself is, how come God placed that person in my life? Am I like Cyrus in a position of influence where I can issue a decree of freedom and share the good news? Am I like Jesus in a specific place at a specific time in history? Am I called like him to die for someone else? Die in the sense of giving of your time, giving of your effort, giving of your money, giving of your resources, giving of your skills, right? Death isn't just in the physical death. Death is about that daily self-denial, that daily giving of yourself to somebody else. Is it possible that God is calling us for such a time as this? You know, when Cyrus obeyed God's calling and issued the decree for everyone to go back, you would think that everyone would have jumped up, packed, their, packed up their bags, and, and gone home. But you know very few people did. I forget the exa- exact percentage, but very few people went back. And Josephus writes about that and says, people had, were content with their possessions. They didn't, leave, they didn't want to leave their houses. They didn't want to leave you know, their things that they had accrued. They were content to stay in Babylon, so they didn't go back to Israel. And you would think that when Jesus came to this earth and died for the people that were there, you would think that many people would then, after he resurrected, you know, jump to him and say, thank you for what you did. But very few people did. And you would think that when Jesus makes this invitation and says, who will go for me? You know, I have this great news to share with the world that they are called by name, that they're loved, that they're here for a purpose, that they're not an accident, that I, that I have a purpose for each and every one of them. You would think that we would jump up and, and go, but we don't. And I understand that very well. Even though I'm a pastor and even though that, that's a specific calling that I've accepted, um, living that out in a daily life, right? In, in different ways. It, I understand and I totally sympathize that it's a challenge. 
And we're going to be discussing in a, in a bit some of the challenges that we face and some of the reasons why it's so hard for us to share about Jesus or to share about, not even, even if we don't say the name Jesus to, to, to love others the way that we should. Um, we're going to be talking about that, but I just want to focus on, I guess, as we close, this idea that as we ourselves experience the goodness of God, as we ourselves experience the desire to want to go back to spiritual Israel, that that will enable us to then feel the joy and the motivation to share with others what hopefully will be to us good news. There's a passage in Isaiah that I want to close on. And uh, it's, it's a passage that I think a lot of people read and are inspired by. Um, and, you know, the idea of a calling, not everyone is called to preach. Not everyone is called to be a pastor. And I think that's on purpose. God has a different calling for everybody because God created everyone uniquely. And so I cannot tell you what your calling is. I cannot tell you what God is asking you to do. But I think the important thing is being willing to explore what that may be, being willing to obey when it comes. And it happened to Isaiah. It says in Isaiah, the guy that we've been reading about, who made all these prophecies, right? Even for him, he had to accept the call to write all those down and to you know, be a prophet. And this is how it happened. It says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I send me. And it is my prayer that as we experience the power of God's holiness and the experience, the power of his forgiveness, that's what Isaiah experiences, the power of his forgiveness, that when he asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That we will jump up and say, here am I, send me.